you would please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. We have been going through chapters 40, and I'm not exactly sure which chapter it ends at, but there's been an ongoing um, theme or set of themes. Um, one of those is Messiah, God's servant. Another is Israel, God's servant. And then a third one is idols are vanity and that there's only one true God. And so those have been kind of three themes that have been woven ever since we started chapter 40. And we've made it to the end of chapter 43. Last week we covered a little bit of that, but I want us to, to look at it a little closer in a couple areas. So we'll reread verse 22 through 28. So Isaiah 43, starting in verse 22, it says, But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense, Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins, thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will remember thy sin will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou, that thou mayest be as justified. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. And so as we were covering this last week, one of the things that we described or that we kind of pulled out of this passage is the fact that Israel has multiple sins. And they all revolve around, at least the ones that God chose to bring out, they revolve around their worship of God. Um, the fact that they didn't call upon his name and I've highlighted or underlined the word weary because throughout the passage, it's mentioned the idea of them being weary of God. And they have also made God to be weary of having to deal with them and their sins and transgressions. And so this was the list and it, it kind of highlighted the fact that Israel had gotten into the same idea of pagan worship that we see in our world today. When people worship idols, and they don't like to admit that's what they're doing, but in reality they are, the idea is, is that somehow they can appease this idol or this god and as they appease this God, this God then rewards them with what they want. And so it's really a manipulative worship. 
um, and not even worship at all. It's just a manipulation game. And so God is calling them out that they've really followed the same type of thing that we find in, in the pagan worship. And so one of the commentaries made this comment, God didn't enslave or weary Israel with ritual, but they enslaved and wearied God with their sins and iniquities. And so I wanted us to look at a couple verses in particular. The first one, or the first two, is the end of chapter, or uh, verse 24, and then all of verse 25. It says, But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Now, if you'll notice, there's multiple words highlighted. Serve and wearied are words that are repeated throughout this passage. And so I kind of take note of that. And it is, as that commentary mentioned, Israel is acting like they're inconvenienced and wearied and, and having to serve God under these difficult circumstances to worship him. And yet, when you took a look from the other vantage point, it's God who's having to deal with them and serve them with their sins and it's God that's being wearied because of their transgressions. And so that's kind of the thing that launches us into what is this set of words, sins, iniquities, transgressions, and then sins again. There's three words being used there. It's mentioned sins twice. But these words are used to describe mankind's condition. Let's start with iniquities. What is iniquities? What does it mean? Sin. Okay. If it means sin, then why did God use iniquities and he used sins? Why didn't he just use the same word over and over again? Oh, well, I, I'm going to tell you, in God's eyes, all sin is sin. There's not degrees of sin. Now, in man's eyes, that's not true. Man's eyes, murder is worse than a lot of other sins. But Yeah, but if you know you're sinning and you keep doing it, isn't that worse? Okay, now, Linda brings up a good point, and there is, in the Old Testament... Um, the idea that if you're willfully sinning, that there's not a sacrifice for that. But if you unintentionally sin, there is. And so there's sins that we commit that we know we're doing wrong, and then there's ones that we ignorantly commit. And so, yeah, there's a difference, but would that justify a different word for sin, you know, I'm still grappling with what do I do with iniquities here? What does it mean? 
So I'm going to start with Kurt and then Nancy on. Oh, I, I'm back up just a God calls some sin abomination. He does. And not others. So does that does that mean that he puts more emphasis on those sins? I think you're right. There is some additional emphasis when God says that sin is an abomination. But from the standpoint of sin, it's still a sin. You know, and so it, it makes it kind of hard for us because not everything does God call an abomination. So Kurt's brought up a really good point on that. Still doesn't help me with iniquities. And so Nancy and then I saw uh, in the back. So let, let me, Audrey, you'll be next. I just couldn't remember your name off the top of my head. Nancy? Iniquities carry with it some um, labor of continuing, continually sinning? There is certain aspects of iniquities that has a component that continues. And I'll show you what Nancy's talking about in a minute because we're going to go to another passage that uses all three words because I felt like, hey, you know, a lot of times we just have a sin bucket and we just lump it all in, but that makes some distinctions and I think it helps us. Audrey? So we normally use the word when things are really bad, that's gross, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. I think that's what happened. They, they're basically continually just sin and we're God. So it's, it's a sort of being old sinning without any recognition of the holiness of God and that God rejects sin. It's like, I know God, it's a sin, but I do it anyway. So I believe it's a case of presumptuous, yes. My husband said it's being presumptuous. That's a good word. We have presumptuous sins. We have sins that we commit. We have sins of omission where we don't do it. We have presumptuous sins, which I think really gets back to what Nancy was also talking about, you know, where we're presumptuous. And then there's ones that we're totally clueless. And of all of those, I don't like any of them, especially when I look in the mirror and see them, see them in my life. Lynette? My concordance also uses injustice and wickedness. Injustice and wickedness, which is like a broad spectrum, not specific Okay, so Lynette kind of gets us to the first word, which is iniquities. It's an evil or wicked nature or character. Uh, it's not a specific action or thought or word, but rather it's unfortunately when Adam and Eve sinned, it became man's basic nature. And so when it comes to iniquities, it's more our character, which every person has to deal with, the sinful nature and the perverseness that's there. And Roxanne, I missed you earlier. Yeah, well, I'll recognize you now. Good 
are you seeing that? Or where's the God of judgment? So kind of that same idea of bad character. Absolutely. And, and I like the fact that the reference you just had, it talks about God being wearied, same as Isaiah did. And so iniquities has more to do with our sinful nature, our character. So that brings us to transgressions. What are transgressions? Okay, it's a violation of the law of God. And so if you think about it, God gave Moses the law, the giving of the law. And in Romans, Paul highlights the fact if the law wasn't there, we wouldn't have knowledge of where things are sinful. And so transgressions are a violation of God's law. And then sin is just, my best way of describing it is it's rebellion and defiance and willful disobedience against God and his authority. And so there's some subtle differences and I wouldn't bring it out except God does. Here in Isaiah, he mentions the fact that there are these three aspects to the condition that you and I are in. When Adam and Eve sinned, man fell. We no longer were reflecting God's glory the way that we should. And we had a sinful character or sin nature, a perverseness, a wickedness. And because that was our character, we would violate God's law as well as there are things that aren't in God's law, but we know reflect his holiness where we rebel against it. And so there are these three things. Now, I thought it was really interesting for, I think, most everyone in this room, you probably remember as God was dealing with Moses and the Exodus, at some point, Moses asked God to see his glory. And when he asked God to see his glory, God said, well, I'll let you see my back parts. And so he's hiding Moses in what is, you know, a, kind of a crevice in a cliff and kind of covering him with his hands so Moses won't die. And this is what is said when God reveals himself in some small way, and I know it had to be really small because God is so much bigger than this. It says, and the Lord passed by before him, talking about God passing by Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundance, abundant in goodness and truth. So it starts out as Moses is getting to see some of God's glory and just a fraction of it. What happens is God's attributes are being called out. Now, a couple months back, maybe longer, we had a slide that said God is, and we started putting in some of the attributes that Isaiah had been describing, the fact that he's holy, he's merciful, he's righteous. And so we kind of noticed that also. But then 
the next verse where it's described in Moses, it says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, if they all were the same, God wouldn't have separated them there. But they're different. And in, then he says, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. And so I think what we can draw from this is where we want God's mercy the most is probably dealing with our iniquities, our sinful character. And the reason is, is the consequences of that continue in our family. Whatever character that I have that's wrong, I'll probably pass some of that to my children. Now, jokingly, when they misbehaved when they were little, I'd say, you learned that from your mother. But uh, the truth is, is my children have two parents, both who recognize we need a savior and that we're sinful and that we have some level of iniquity. Um, but we need God to forgive that and to purge that. And the iniquity is what our kids catch. They kind of pick it up without even struggling hard. Now, I want us to also realize that the grace of God can pluck a child of the most wicked, sinful family and make them a God-fearing, God-honoring person that people just have the highest respect for. But the general trend, if it were not for God's mercy and grace, is going to be that our children are going to mirror our iniquities to the third and fourth generation. And so I thought it would be important for us to realize that God, when he's dealing with you and I, he's dealing with our sins, which are the actions and the things that we do to rebel against God. He deals with our transgressions, which is where we know we violated his written law. And he deals with our iniquities, which is our character that is based on our sinful nature. And so these three words kind of give us a pretty good hint about what we're made of. And that's true for all mankind. It's not just the Jews. Um, they don't have a corner on the market of saying we sin more. Uh, Gentiles don't have a corner on that market either. We all fight and struggle with this. And so God's mercy comes in. And I like this next verse that we already looked at says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. That was kind of interesting. The italics words up there are words that the translators added so it's able to be read more smoothly. As I was looking at that, it kind of struck me and at least one or two of the commentaries pointed out too that the word I is repeated. 
One commentary made the comment that that's a long form of an independent pronoun and it's repeated twice so that it carries more weight when declaring I am he. Um, I don't know languages enough to tell you if that's true, but I can imagine if they're going to print it in a commentary, they've checked out what they're doing. But the phrase, I am he, just kind of kept mulling over in my mind. And uh, if you have your Bible handy, turn over to John 18. John 18, because I kept thinking, I've heard this phrase, I am he. Where have I heard it? And it was in John 18. Jesus is in the garden. The soldiers are coming with Judas to arrest him. And in verse 4 of John 18, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as they had heard him say, heard, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, that passage doesn't describe to us why that happened. It just simply said, when he answered, I am he, the power of his stating that had an impact on them. In my mind, and I could be totally wrong, so this is just, you know, maybe I ought to step out from behind the podium and say, in my visualization and speculation of things, I picture the angels looking at these soldiers who are far less powerful than the angels, saying, you insolent, disrespectful soldiers, show some respect to your creator and kind of push them backwards and push them to the ground since they wouldn't bow to their creator on their own. Now, I could be totally wrong, but the authority of God's I am he, I think carried significant weight, and I think that's what's being brought out here on this I, even I, am he. Lynette? Uh, when he was added, that he was not in the original. It was just I. That was God's memorial name forever. He said that in Genesis. He said, I am. I am. That's my memorial name forever. And so he said, he actually said, I am. Yeah. And the fact that the Jews heard him yeah, absolutely. In fact, in fact, in one moment, I think it's John 18, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'll have to look it up, I think it's all three. When he said that again, when they picked up stones to kill him, because he was calling himself God, it said that, it said, you make yourself out to God, because the he was added by transparency from there. Yeah. And so Lynette's bringing out the fact, if you remember back to Moses again, um, Moses asked, who should I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. And so God went by the name of I am. And so both in John as well as this passage in Isaiah, the emphasis is on the fact 
God is the one doing the action here. And that there should be, really on our part, a reverence and respect. And that's kind of the point that I hope you got from the passage in John. The soldiers, it doesn't say that they willingly went to their knees, but they fell back and then were pushed down and then they had to, to get back up. That brings us back though to this verse. I am, I, I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Notice that God is blotting out the transgressions. It's God's action. Is there anything that Israel's doing to remove their transgressions? Not at all. Is there anything that Israel is doing that would move God to blot out their transgressions? Not at all. Stephen? Okay. <laughs> Steve's right. If you think about it, before this verse, there were all these sins which had to do with their worship of God. And Steve said it, and it's probably true for all of us, you know, they weren't even probably doing it right. And if nothing else, their heart wasn't right. And that's what God kept emphasizing, that they would serve him with their lips, but their heart was far from him. And so there's this, this verse, and I like the, the phrase after transgressions, for my own sake. Why is God doing any of this? It's not because we deserve it. It's not that we can go to God. In fact, one thing that became really obvious to me is in and of ourselves, if we go to God on behalf of the people that we would like to see God save and say, God, for my sake, would you do this? That doesn't carry anything. Even though we're redeemed and we have Jesus as our savior. If we're thinking that our works, what we're doing merits God taking action, I think we're deceiving ourselves. Now, if we go to God praying based on his son Jesus' righteousness, which has been imputed to us, that's a whole different story. But there's nothing in and of what I do or you do that would motivate God to blot out someone else's transgressions or even our own. But God's character is what's at stake. God is basically saying for my own sake, and if you remember, and part of the reason I took us to Moses is all of those attributes of God those are true because he's merciful. He's still righteous. And so this verse um, is kind of a, a key pinnacle 
in this passage. In fact, um, how many of you all remember what a chiastic structure is? Okay, I see a handful of, of things. Um, I'll try and help you with this. Some, some weren't here when we did this, but throughout Isaiah, there is a, a structure that's called a chiastic structure. Um, you can go online and you can find this. And as one person said, it seems like you could find a chiastic structure behind every tree in Isaiah. And some of them I can picture, some of them I can't. But I'm going to try and describe it. And uh, I'm going to try and describe it in a term that maybe some people might remember. I don't know if I would, but you know, hopefully it's helpful to you. If you went into the kitchen and you were going to make a sandwich, you would usually grab two slices of bread and you'd put them on a plate face up. And then you might say, okay, I want some mayonnaise on there. And you'd put mayonnaise on both pieces of bread so it'd be more moist. And then you'd put, maybe if you're like me, you like cheese, you'd put cheese. And then you might put turkey meat. And then you might put another thing of cheese. And then in the middle, you might have, you know, a piece of ham. Not that that's kosher, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> At any rate, when you put those over, what you find is the same idea of a chiastic structure. There's bread, there's mayonnaise, there's cheese, there's turkey, there's more cheese, and then right in the middle, there's this you know, nice big chunk of ham. And then you repeat the same thing on the bottom part of it. Well, that's kind of how a lot of Hebrew literature is. The main point is right smack in the middle, just like that sandwich. And so if you look at this verse, verse 25, there was like about six layers of things that are said since verse 8 of this chapter all the way to verse 8 of the next chapter. And right in the middle is this verse. It's the highlight. It's the key point. Um, now, do I always see the chiastic structure? Not on your life. But this one stood out to me. Why? Because this is what God is doing out of mercy to you and I. To Israel also, but to you and I. And so our transgressions are blotted out. And then God says he'll remember He'll not remember, excuse me, will not remember our sins. Is there a difference between remembering or not remembering our sins versus forgetting? Does God forget our sins? Nancy? He can't forget, but he doesn't hold us liable. Okay. So... God is not frail like us. Um, I can see someone, in fact, Wednesday night, someone came into the AV booth, and, and I was like, I think I know this person, but I couldn't remember. Um, I'd forgotten her name. Um, God doesn't have that problem. He remembers everything, but he chooses not to remember our sins. Uh, he doesn't forget them, though. Steve? 
Okay, Steve mentions about our justice system, and our justice system today is having lots of problems, but there's certain aspects of it that kind of mirror um, God's way of doing things. And so in the justice system, there are certain ways in which previous violations of the law are not, even though the judge can see it, he's not supposed to use it because of how the law is. And so when you think about this, God doesn't forget. In fact, um, many times we see on TV, they'll have on the news something about a person having a rap sheet. And inevitably, um, some of those, you just see the whole thing. And it's so small print, you don't read all the things. But then other types of cases, they have big black sections where it's been redacted. Well, when I got to this about God will not remember our sins, I thought of that redacted report. It's still there. God knows about it, but he chooses to redact it. He chooses not to remember it, but he didn't forget it. And so we see God's mercy and God's grace here. Now, the end of the chapter. Yes, I'm sorry. What's interesting to me in this verse is that iniquity is not mentioned. Transgressions and sins are past and present. But iniquity, without that being forgiven or taken upon Christ, we couldn't enter into heaven. Because nothing can enter into heaven that defiled. And later in Isaiah 53, he talks about Christ um, receive, uh, God will lay upon him the iniquity of us all mm -hmm. so upon our physical death I think at that point at least by then the iniquities in our heart has been taken away by Christ for us to be able to go into God's presence I think John brings up a really good point this verse deals with the transgressions and sins Isaiah 53 deals with the iniquities that is put upon Christ. And so that allows us to enter into heaven. Why? Because he took upon himself our iniquities and gave us his righteousness. Yes, ma'am. I read somewhere, and it seems like I got this idea from uh, 53, that just because you inherited then your inheritance of Abraham doesn't guarantee you that you're going to be forgiven if you keep being a sinner. Well, I think that may have probably been a mistaken idea that you might have read in a devotional or something. Yeah. Well, the reality is, is after we're made to be a child of God, we still sin. 
we still fight with iniquity in our fleshly nature. It's only when we get a glorified body that we're not going to have iniquity and sin and, and transgressions that bother us. But until we get that, we're going to still struggle with those things. But we have to be real careful about how we view that because the idea of us earning or doing some work in addition to what Christ did on the cross is not what we're taught in the Bible. If you remember in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The idea of some of what you just said to me is things that we, mankind, say, well, you, you got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you got to do this other. And I don't know, I don't think you meant that, but that's how so many things do come across. Yeah. Your ancestor of Abraham doesn't mean that you get away scot-free for sin. You, you're equal to other people. That's basically what I was trying to say. Yeah, I, I figured that it was... It was something a little different than what I was hearing. But, you know, let's, let's think about this for a minute. Jew and Gentile alike is saved the same way. And that is we look to Christ and we believe that we need a Savior because we're sinful. And it's through faith. Not any works. Not coming to church. Not doing some great thing. It's purely what Christ did on the cross, and we just accept the gift with an open hand of faith. And so, kind of, Linda gave us a perfect intro to the last three verses of the chapter. No, you did. It was, it, as we look by faith to God's mercy, we want to add something. And so you look at verse 26, he says, God says to Israel, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to the reproaches. If you look at this, God is saying through Isaiah the prophet, I'm gonna blot out your transgressions. I will choose not to remember your sins. But if you think you can justify yourself with how good you are, go ahead and try it. And in some ways, you know, my way of thinking, I'm like, good luck with that. It's not going to work too good. Why? Because our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions, all of those things, that's built into us. We inherited that from our earthly parents who inherited it all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so God says through Isaiah to 
to Israel. He says, okay, remind me, plead your case, and declare the reasons why a holy God should accept your justification, your self-righteousness. And that's really what it boils down to. And then he says, if you think you got a chance, let me remind you about your first fathers or first father. Now, on first blush, you know, my first thought was, oh, Adam, he was the very first father. But several of the commentaries mentioned that they thought since it was dealing with Israel, it might even be considered Abraham or Jacob because throughout here, Jacob is the father of the nation Israel. Now, obviously his grandfather was Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. But he says, the first father hath sinned. And so usually there was an honor of a person's parents and grandparents where they would basically look upon that person with um, and give prestige and, and respect. And he says, you think you can justify yourself? Then look at your first father, person that you respect the most. Did Abraham sin? Yeah. He lied to one of the kings about Sarah, his wife. Yeah, now it was a half lie. She was his sister too, or stepsister, or some tie there. But he still lied. Did Jacob sin? Oh man. Most of us realize that his name, you know, when translated means scoundrel. And it's like, boy, can't we relate to that? <laughs> and so it says, your first father. Now, whether it was Adam, Abraham, or Jacob, I don't think it really makes much difference. You can look at all of those, and God records the fact they all sinned. Then he says, your teachers have transgressed against me. I don't stand up here and tell you all that by any means I've attained any kind of perfection because I know better. Um, I see things in the mirror in my heart that, yeah, there's no way. Well, God's saying to Israel, even your best, the teachers that are teaching God's law, they've transgressed. And then he says the word, therefore. And that kind of ties together what's happening to them now. Because of their sin, because of their transgressions, and all of that has its root in their character, which is the iniquity. Because of all of that, God himself has profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and he's given Jacob to curse and Israel to re reproaches. In Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the people and he tells them when they get into the promised land, they're gonna have to choose between one of two paths. One path, which is obedience to God, is going to bring blessing. The other path, 
which is disobedience and rebellion against God, is going to lead to a curse. And he describes those. And so this passage is saying, because they have sinned, because of their transgressions, because they didn't obey God, God's brought the curse upon them that he promised. And so we see the verse that shows mercy and shows God's action, shows that it's given because of God's character, has nothing to do with Israel's character any more than the church today receives salvation from God because of our character. It's not happening. It's happening because of God's mercy. And so this verse, which is the pinnacle, is surrounded on each side with the reality that Israel sinned. And if you don't believe it, look at the consequences. That's what they were going through. God had brought those consequences upon them because of their sin. Now, the good news is God didn't stop there. Chapter 44, which we have zero time to get into today, starts with, yet now. Could just as easily say, but now, let's talk about what God's going to do. And so, we'll actually just kind of look at the phrase. The first two verses, I want you to please take some time maybe this next week and see if you can find the chiastic structure in verses 1 and 2. It's not as thick a sandwich as the one that I described earlier as far as getting to, to the verse that, um, verse 25, but it's pretty simple and straightforward, but there's a chiastic structure in there. And God is not leaving Israel suffering through the consequences of their sin, but rather he's showing mercy and he's declaring some things about them even though they failed him. And the good news to you and I is we get that same mercy as the church. We don't have these same promises, but God has given us equal mercy to what he's given to the Jewish people. And today in the age that we live, um, we get to see God's mercy to Jew first and then to the Gentile. And we ought to be very grateful. So as we go into the worship service, think about that a little bit. And as pastors bringing to us a passage out of Mark, Thank God for his mercy, because were it not for his mercy, Jew and Gentile alike would be destroyed. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 44. I was hoping to get the first eight verses, but it just doesn't always happen that way. But uh, those next eight verses kind of show you God's not done with Israel. And so see if you can find the chiastic structure there any other unique things. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you that how you respond to your creation, mankind, is out of mercy and love and not out of response to our sinfulness and our iniquities and our transgressions. Father, help us to invite others to, to see your mercy and to receive it through the accepting of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, we have many on our prayer list that are friends, family, loved ones that need Jesus, and we just pray that you'd work in their hearts to draw them to where they would accept him as their Savior. Pray for the worship service. Pray that you would give Pastor Aaron clarity of thought. May he proclaim your truth, and may it cause us to exalt Christ highly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.